Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. I've got one more announcement about my live podcast recording with Vitalik Buterin. We have chosen a venue. On March 20th, Vitalik and I will be on stage at Columbia Journalism School in the Joseph D. Jamail Lecture Hall on the third floor. As I said on Twitter, this is especially meaningful for me because I went to Columbia J School and never imagined when I went there that I'd be holding an event in the same building 11 years hence. This choice of venue actually has nothing to do with my alumni status. It is pure serendipity, which makes it all the sweeter. The evening starts at 6 p.m. with food and drinks. Vitalik and I will start our conversation at 7 and we'll wrap up around 8.15. There will be a short Q&A at the end, plus a few giveaways. And we'll round out the night with more drinks and networking until 9 p.m. If you haven't yet bought your tickets, I suggest you do so ASAP as there are only a few left. Go to the Eventbrite link inside your podcast player now to get a seat at what is shaping up to be a fabulous event. Also, if you're a podcast listener not based in New York, you can pre-submit a video of yourself asking Vitalik a question. I'll select a few to play during the event. Just record a short video of yourself, one minute max, stating your first and last name, location and affiliation, if relevant, and asking your question. Email it to hello at unchainedpodcast.com with the subject line video question. Otherwise, I hope to see you on March 20th at 6 p.m. at the first Unchained Live for a night delving into the pressing questions about whether Ethereum is losing its lead, how Vitalik views the competition heating up in the smart contract space, governance, and more. It's going to be a substantive, fabulous conversation, so get your tickets now, and I will see you at Columbia. Within months, cryptocurrency anti-money laundering regulations go global. Are you ready? Avoid stiff penalties or blacklisting by deploying effective anti-money laundering tools for exchanges and crypto businesses, the same tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. The topic or topics of today's episode are Binance, Binance Chain, and BNB tokens. My guests who will be discussing this are Kyle Samani and Tushar Jain, Managing Partners of Multicoin Capital. Welcome, Kyle and Tushar. Hey, Laura. Great to be on. Thanks for having us. Hey, Laura. Great to be on again. So let's just be clear for the listeners. Your firm has invested in BNB tokens. So I just want everyone listening to be aware of that. In general, hopefully most listeners are aware that anytime I have investors on my show, of course, they're going to talk positively about anything they've invested in. But Kyle and Tushar, I wanted you to come on the show because Multicoin recently did a pretty in-depth look at Binance and its strategy to decentralize. And Binance is obviously a hugely important company in the crypto space. And there were a lot of really interesting observations and bold forecasts you guys made that I thought we could unpack. 
And for listeners who haven't listened to my episode with CZ from last summer, I urge you to do so to hear more about Binance's background and also really just to get a the flavor of what CZ is like. Um, honestly, I'm not going to lie. That's probably my favorite interview I've ever done. Um, he's just the kind of person who really has strength in his convictions and it really shows. And it was just a really, it was just a fabulous conversation. Um, but so Kyle and Tushar, why don't we start by describing the success of Binance and its centralized exchange so far? Yeah, absolutely. So this is Tushar. Um, and we, we're, we've been watching Binance and their execution ever since they launched in 2017. And we've been incredibly impressed by how well they've executed at really uh, just dominating the crypto spot trading market. They have by far the most volume of any other crypto exchange um, that, that offers spot trading. And... In fact, they have more volume than the other top three competitors combined. Uh, now, all of these numbers are subject to some modification to remove some of what we call wash trading. So if you go look on CoinMarketCap and you look at top exchanges, those numbers aren't exactly accurate. So in our report and in our research, uh, we referenced um, some findings from the Blockchain Transparency Institute, which looked at all of these exchanges and tried to determine the amount of real volume as opposed to, uh, you know, just reported volume. Binance has also been incredibly aggressive in listing tokens, and they offer the most token pairs of any of the major spot trading exchanges out there. So, uh, you know, their dominance in both volume as well as token pairs is unquestioned. And one thing that I always just love about their story, and again, if you haven't listened to the episode with CZ from last summer, definitely do so because he describes on there how he had never even heard of an ICO. And then within like, I think I forget the time frame. it was just a few weeks. Uh, I forget, like three weeks or 15 days or something after hearing of an ICO for the first time, he was holding an ICO. And he raised... Um, I should have looked these numbers up before we started again, but I think it was like, was it 15 million? Yeah, it was about $15 million. Yeah. And then within five months became the number one crypto exchange. <laughs> so, um, so it was just, I mean, you know, obviously the cliche term to describe that is a meteoric rise, but that is just such a, a good description of what happened there. So one of the things that you mentioned in your report was that what's been especially impressive about Binance becoming so dominant is the fact that it doesn't offer any fiat pairs. So why is that such an impressive feat? Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, if you consider getting into crypto, right, assuming you have no crypto, uh, you want to convert some of your fiat money into uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum or something else. And uh, you, know, you need to be able to, to do that with a fiat to crypto exchange. Um, so Coinbase in the U.S. Is, is probably the most dominant fiat crypto exchange in different countries around the world. There are other exchanges that have kind of um, local local dominance for getting people onboarded in the crypto. Uh, but then a lot of uh, then exchange like Binance, uh, Binance until very recently did not have any fiat to crypto support at all. Uh, it only supported trading crypto to crypto. And so what's actually probably most remarkable and, and really most counterintuitive about Binance's rise has been that they, they became the world's dominant spot trading exchange, despite the fact that they did not have any fiat crypto. So that means people came in, um, you know, fiat crypto on 
Coinbase or on Huobi or on BitHub or, or what kind of whatever exchange in their local jurisdiction um, got into Bitcoin or, or Ether and then went to Binance and then kind of did most of the rest of their trading there. Um, and it's pretty remarkable that that's led to the most, you know, Binance being the most dominant exchange. Yep. And I'd, I'd like to add a, a few more stats here um, that, that we pulled up from the report that we published recently. And what we see here is that Binance is the top traded exchange for 82% of the top 50 tokens. Um, and Binance is facilitating 36.6% of global crypto spot trading volumes. Um, so it, those are just some numbers to, to help put that into perspective. And to have accomplished that without having any support for fiat currencies during the period that we're describing is quite simply phenomenal. Yeah, because of course, at that time when Binance uh, had just launched, you know, that was the summer of 2017. So at that moment, kind of awareness of crypto maybe was sort of hitting the mainstream. But definitely, it was before we saw the real, real massive run up with all kinds of everyday people getting into crypto, uh, which happened more in the fall. So after that, crazy bull run. How has Binance been faring so far in this crypto winter? It seems from our observations that Binance did not make uh, the same mistake that many other organizations in crypto made, where they overinvested and they grew too large um, during the bull market and had to go and, uh, you know, cut things back uh, through crypto winter. From what we have found Binance, uh, you know, has not undergone any meaningful layoffs. They actually seem to be growing at a healthy pace. Um, and from the latest information that we have, they have about 400 employees around the world. So I think that they have um, been quite disciplined in how they grew. And this is paying off for them now as they're able to continue investing throughout the crypto winter while some other organizations, uh, you know, maybe are having to pull back. Yeah, I wonder if some of that discipline you're talking about is, I mean, who, you know, I, I didn't ask CZ this, but I do remember I asked him kind of about all his newfound wealth. And he said something about how it hasn't really driven him to to purchase or spend anything flashy because he, he said just the knowledge that he could buy that was enough. So um, maybe if he has sort of a similar... Um, kind of attitude toward his business, you know, to be to be pretty frugal or or just um, to not let things go to his head, then that might have been the case. Um, how, and what about trading volumes on Binance during this crypto winter? So trading volumes, just if you denominate in fiat, just are generally going to match market prices. Um, so you can see that, uh, you know, trading volumes across all exchanges are down about the same as uh, the market is down. Um, so it, that is that is definitely uh, affected Binance just as much as it's affected the other exchanges. Uh, from our analysis, this was all proportional. Um, and none of the major exchanges, uh, the, you know, Binance, Bitfinex, Coinbase, Kraken, um, and, and other top exchanges of the world seem to have uh, benefited or been hurt disproportionately through crypto winter in terms of volume. And I know some people have been making noise about Coinbase seeming to have changed its philosophy entirely, almost 
uh, as some people are surmising, it's kind of reaching for revenue. Um, do you feel like Binance has changed its any any part of its operating ethos, I guess, um, due to the fact that volumes are down? No, we don't really think it has. I mean, the most remarkable thing about Binance is that they, they've really executed this regulatory arbitrage strategy from inception, uh, right? They moved headquarters, I think, five times, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so they, they're just kind of structurally a very decentralized organization, and they, ha- they have been since inception. Their 400 employees are spread across 40 countries or so. Um, so, so given that, by Binance has, has been pretty true to their mission of enabling people to, I think they call it, um, their tag, I think it's exchange anything or exchange, exchange the world, exchange the world. Yeah. That's, that's the tagline. And, and it's been pretty clear from day one that that's been, that's been the, the mission and that their growth path and trajectory has aligned very strongly to that. If you look at, you know, all of the new initiatives they're rolling out over the course of 2019, those are all are really just in, in acceleration of that mission. So, Things like Binance Chain and the decentralized exchange, the DEX, um, that, that has very large implications for the future of, of the Binance team and employees. Um, Launchpad as a, as a capital formation and fundraising platform. Uh, look at Binance Research and look at the fiat exchanges. I mean, everything they're doing is in support of that mission, uh, but you know, doing so in a way to be do it in a, a compliant way and to do it in a way that bridges the old world to the new world. Yeah, and we're going to get into all of that um, more deeply in a second, but I, I want to establish a little bit more stuff about Binance before we get into its decentralization strategy. So, you know, we've been talking about kind of uh, what it's been doing or just how it hasn't seemed to really change its strategy. But so what business moves has it been making this past year? Like I know, you know, adding fiat is one of them. Like what what are some of the things that you see it's it's been putting into place? Yep. I think Binance has been fairly aggressive in expanding out their business um, and taking advantage of this bear market as an opportunity to to really build. And so a a few of the key initiatives are, uh, as you mentioned, uh, fiat exchanges. They brought on fiat exchanges in Jersey, which supports euros and pounds. Uh, They I believe have also brought on their Singapore exchange as well as uh, one in Uganda. Um, and from what we found in our research, it, it seems their plans are to bring on 10 crypto to fiat exchanges over the course of 2019. Um, so that's a fairly meaningful initiative on its own. Um, on top of that, we have the launch of Binance Chain, which will offer a decentralized exchange for which uh, they've released a testnet fairly recently. And this decentralized exchange is, in our opinion, the most important and largest initiative that Binance is um, taking on right now. Um, and just to show you know, how committed they are to the decentralized exchange, um, in order to attract volumes to the decentralized exchange, the fees are actually lower on the decentralized exchange versus a centralized exchange, something that we haven't really seen elsewhere. Um, in addition to that, they've recently executed um, the first two successful sales on the Binance Launchpad platform, which is uh, effectively a platform for uh, ICOs or initial coin offerings. Um, and they have a schedule um set out where they're going to be doing one sale per month. Uh, both of the, the first sales that they did um, sold out extremely quickly. Um, so it, they've shown some success with the Launchpad product as well. And last but not least, 
They have been devoting a lot of energy to their research initiative and really you know, sharing research with their clients and their users and trying to create uh, a better informed crypto community. Um, and while that doesn't necessarily have the direct monetization opportunities as those first three initiatives, I think it's um, also incredibly impactful. And, you know, being a very mission-driven culture, they need, I, I see how this fits with what Binance is doing. And can you also describe the Secure Asset Fund for users and why that's important? Oh, absolutely. So many exchanges um, have been targets of hacks or other types of um, security problems in the past. Uh, you know, everyone knows about the infamous Mt. Gox incident. Um, and I mean, even more recently, we have things like Quadriga in Canada. Uh, and there were a few attacks last year um, as well, uh, primarily on some uh, Asian exchanges, if I recall correctly. And so in response to those types of events, Binance has created what they call the SAFU Fund, uh, S-A-F-U, uh, which I think <laughs> is named after uh, a typo that CZ had on Twitter. Uh, just like HODL, uh, we in crypto love our, our typos becoming memes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they went and they created the SAFU Fund, and I believe that is capitalized through some of the trading fees that Binance earns and is made available to insure against losses in the event that Binance's security is breached. However, as far as we are aware, uh, we have uh, no evidence that Binance's security has ever been breached or that any funds have ever been lost. But it's nice to know that there is an insurance fund in place um, in the event that that does happen. And I also wanted to ask about this fact, which I find pretty distinctive about Binance, it doesn't have a bank account. So where does it hold its assets? So Binance holds their crypto assets in a variety of, uh, you know, cold storage wallets. From from what we understand, those are distributed across the world. Um, and I believe that the, the Binance fiat to crypto exchanges have bank accounts in the jurisdictions in which they're domiciled. So, you know, you'd expect Binance Jersey to have a bank account in Jersey and Binance Singapore will have a bank account in Singapore. Um, but the core entity is um, still free of the fiat system. And so if they're accepting payment for something, it has to be or the, this other party has to pay them in crypto. Is that how that works? Uh, I believe so. And I believe they also pay people in crypto. Um, now, I know that uh, a large percentage, um, I think the vast majority of their employees take um, a significant part of their salaries in BNB tokens. Um, but other cryptos that, that are used to pay employees, you know, most likely include assets like Bitcoin or USDC and other stable coins. Um, those are quite useful for payments. And why does it not have a bank account? I think that the regulatory arbitrage strategy, which they undertook in the early days, would have probably been harder to execute if they were reliant on a bank account. And given the fact that they were operating only a crypto to crypto exchange and didn't have any fiat support, I think CZ and team probably made the determination that a bank account was more trouble than it was worth at the time. And this goes back to, I think, a comment maybe it was Kyle made earlier, which is um, about how it's not clear which government has jurisdiction over Binance. So why is that not clear and why is that significant? Yeah, so, um, I mean, it's not that any one government doesn't have 
this jurisdiction is just that Binance operates across many jurisdictions. They have now settled kind of a home base in Singapore. Um, they also have set up another like, you know, HQ1, HQ2 kind of a thing in Malta. Um, it appears they're working on some sort of HQ3 in South America somewhere, although that's still TBD, you know, where that's going to end up. So, I mean, they are subject to jurisdictions in those local local regions, but they they now have the the level of, of scale um, such that they can negotiate with governments and and get um, uh, you know get favorable treatment and, and guarantees um, that they're they're not going to get like Binance launched in China in July 2017, and two months later the Chinese government shut down crypto. Like that that was obviously a very scarring experience for Binance. Um, and so now I think as they operate on a go forward basis, they're going to try and structure. Um, deals with with you know regional governments to ensure that you know something like that doesn't happen again. So this is something that I pressed CZ on in my episode with him, and I, I did recently see he tweeted that he felt like some of the questions were misleading. Um, which I have a feeling what he's referencing is this point in our discussion where it wasn't clear to me that he fully understood um, kind of like how a security is defined in the U.S., which is obviously different than other jurisdictions and also, or maybe he does know, but, you know, at least uh, when it comes to SEC, I think that they say if you're serving U.S. customers, then they have jurisdiction. So I noticed in your report, you said that you actually thought that Binance had little risk of being prosecuted for listing unregistered securities. And of course, with a huge amount of tokens, they have most likely at least a few probably are. So why why do you think there is little risk of that? There's a couple of reasons. Um, one reason is that, uh, you know, we have seen that the SEC and other American regulators are really taking a um, good faith approach to the industry. Um, it, we haven't seen the regulators really go after anyone who was operating in good faith and, you know, who did the best to comply with the regulations, given how gray the regulations really are. And from our research, uh, you know, specifically looking into Binance's listing process, it appears that they're operating in good faith. And so, uh, you know, we think that they are no more at risk of uh, being in violation of listing uh, potential security than, you know, uh, any other exchange, um, you know, an exchange like Kraken or Coinbase or Bitfinex. Um, and so we don't think that um, the SEC is likely to go after any one of those exchanges alone, um, given that they've all engaged in the same activity. Um, and we do think that the good faith approach practiced by Binance in this case, um, it does de-risk it a little bit. Now, that doesn't mean that that there isn't a risk there. That's that's definitely a risk. There's, there's an unknown um, that, uh, you know, how will the regulators actually act and, uh, you know, what happens from here. But all the evidence that we have so far points towards, uh, you know, actors who have acted in good faith or, or not at risk. And why why do you say you don't feel like their risk is any greater than these other exchanges? Because they had such a, or they have still such a, you know, larger number of tokens that they offer. So wouldn't it be, I mean, maybe, maybe the argument could simply be that they just offered many more than these other exchanges. So they might be more of a target. Um, Plausible, uh, but I mean, you look at Coinbase just listed XRP. Um, Bitfinex has uh, a very large number of listings that uh, you know are a significant subset of Binance. Uh, Kraken has you know a very large number of listings as well. It just 
it seems unlikely that Binance gets singled out in this example, um, though, you know, we can't predict precisely what the regulators will do. And then also when you were saying it looks like they made a good faith effort, how are you defining good faith? Is it because they have like a vetting process or yeah, what, what constitutes good faith? Yep. It's, you know, they have a structured vetting process. There's, uh, you know, multiple people within the organization that seem to need to sign off before anything is listed. Uh, you know, they are requiring, from what we understand, um, a legal opinion saying that a token is not a security before it is listed. Uh, so uh, between those those various aspects, uh, I think that's what, in our opinion, constitutes a, a good faith effort. They've also been proactive in delisting assets when there's been some teams that you know, the teams maybe were, were trying in good faith to, to build whatever they said they were going to build, ultimately gave up or, or failed for whatever reason, and that the teams basically kind of shut down, shut down shop. Binance has then been proactive in delisting those assets as well. And then I noticed in your report, you also had this section about money transmission laws. How well does Binance follow those laws and what risks is it taking in regards to money transmission laws? So we are not necessarily experts on, uh, you know, the specifics of global money transmission regulation. Um, from what we have understood, uh, you know, a lot of those laws um, really apply to the fiat side of the world. Um, and now that they have finally launched some fiat support, uh, I'm sure they're, uh, you know, working with those regulators in those jurisdictions to be compliant with all uh, applicable regulation. So, you know, we're not uh, we're not lawyers. Uh, we're not we're not anyone's attorneys. So, you know, we can't say that they have a absolutely clean bill of health. But from what we've seen, um, I think that everything is in compliance. Okay, great. So we're going to discuss Binance's plans to decentralize and the BNB token after the break. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Face it, regulations can stall or kill a fast-moving crypto business. New FAFT and EU cryptocurrency AML laws are coming soon. You could be hit with stiff fines or blacklisted, no matter where your servers are in the world. Prepare now. Deploy the same powerful CypherTrace tools used by regulators. Protect your assets, streamline your compliance programs, and keep your exchange or crypto business out of the regulator's crosshairs. Learn how effective anti-money laundering tools help keep your crypto business safe and trusted. Learn more at cyphertrace.com slash unchained. Cyphertrace is securing the crypto economy. Back to my conversation with Kyle and Tushar of Multicoin Capital. So yeah, so now let's start talking about Binance's plans to decentralize. You described Binance chain briefly before, but why don't you go more into detail on that? Yeah. So, uh, Binance has kind of recognized that a, they want to, they want to fulfill the, the crypto vision in the long run of, of decentralizing kind of core financial infrastructure and technology infrastructure for the world at large. Um, and it's, it's not, you know, not, it's not beyond them that they are running a currently a centralized exchange business, which obviously is not decentralized. Uh, and, and so Binance has started to make a pretty proactive effort to build a, uh, a blockchain that will really support high throughput trading um, of assets. And that, that chain is going to be called Binance Dex. Uh, Binance, it seems like, started working on this really in earnest probably six months ago or so, maybe a little longer, six, nine months ago. Uh, they rolled out a test net pretty recently. Uh, and I think the Binance chain is going to be going live in production at some point in March. So we're, we're pretty excited to see that come out. 
the the really cool thing about Binance Chain is it will allow for truly decentralized peer-to-peer exchange. Um, Binance Inc. or Binance the company will not be in any way able to censor trades, hold user funds, um, manipulate their accounts. Users will be in control of their own keys. Um, and so it's a, it's a, you know, it's a pretty radical approach in that direction. The other major, major, major breakthrough here is in understanding the, the capital flows of the system. Today in centralized exchange world, Binance takes some fees um, on every trade that happens. So if you trade, let's say, one Bitcoin for, you know, 10 Ether, um, then Binance is going to take, I don't know, 10 basis points or 20 basis points or whatever the fees are um, of that trade. In the, the in the Binance chain exchange model, um, different people can run the validators. The chain is going to start off somewhat centralized with eleven validators, but the plan is to to make that to grow that number pretty quickly. And at some point, uh, anyone who owns BNB tokens is going to be able to stake their tokens towards being a validator. And then, if you are a validator in the Binance chain, then every time other people trade on the Binance chain, the validators in the network will actually receive those fees. The fees will not go to Binance Inc. They will go directly to validators or meaning directly to BNB holders. And so this is a major, major shift in strategy um, and in in how uh, revenue is ultimately collected through the system. Um, And that is really exciting for both the future of democratizing kind of this financial infrastructure and for the future of the BNB token holders and investors. And can you just contrast that setup with some of the other popular decentralized exchanges or exchange protocols that are out there, like Zero X? Like I, I don't, I don't know if it's a very different model or, or similar. Yeah. So um, it, it, Binance's model is is pretty substantially different. So the Zero X protocol lives on top of the Ethereum blockchain. Um, the founders at Zero X realized pretty early on that if you wanted to do a decentralized exchange on top of Ethereum. Um, it would be pretty difficult to do what's called an on-chain order book, right? So in a traditional order book, you have limit orders. People saying, "I'm gonna, I'm willing to sell one bitcoin for ten ether at at that at that ratio of one to ten. Some other person may say, "I'll sell one bitcoin for nine ether, right?" And so that's a different price or a different ratio. So you, you know, you need to be able to host that order book of all of these different limit orders. In Ethereum, the block times are about fifteen seconds, um, and the throughput of the system is not super high. And so putting limit orders on the blockchain directly um, is simply unfeasible. Um, the Zero X team realized that from its, you know, basically from from inception, and so they started building a system where you, people could basically match those orders off chain and then s- just do the settlement on chain. So just the actual part where you trade the Bitcoin for the Ether, but not the not the part of price discovery and hosting limit orders. Um, and so that's what the Zero X contract does. Um, that was a big step forward for decentralized exchanges on top of Ethereum. Uh, but unfortunately, what we've kind of seen in practice is that there's still a few a, a few practical problems that have really prevented market makers and liquidity providers from providing liquidity on top of uh, the Xerox protocol. The first is that if you want to cancel an order, you need to pay gas fees in the Xerox model, uh, and that becomes very expensive. Um, most um, for for those of you who don't know kind of how market makers uh, behave, market makers are placing orders and canceling orders a ton. Um, it's actually very common that market makers may cancel 70, 80, or even 90% of the total orders they place on the order book because as prices move around, they will cancel old, old, old orders that have not been filled. Um, and so given that, it, it, it becomes um, prohibitively expensive for market makers to, to um, maintain liquidity on 0x based three layers. The other big problem with the 0x model is lack of deterministic order execution. And what we mean by that is um, because the block times are very 15 seconds and because miners in Ethereum control ultimately which transactions are included in the block, even if a market maker thinks he has matched, he or she has matched an order with another trader, you don't actually know that that order has been filled and actually settled on chain until you see it in a block. 
The next block could be in two seconds. It could be in 10 seconds. It could be in 35 seconds. You don't actually know when that's going to be filled or if the miner or if the miner is going to replace your, um, you know, your signature with someone else's and, and fill it themselves. And so that creates a lot of uncertainty for market makers on how trades actually get executed and filled. And so as a result of these problems, we just haven't seen liquidity on zero X based relayers on top of Ethereum really take off in a meaningful way. If I, I think last time I looked, volumes were like under $2 million a day or maybe a million dollars a day. It's, it's pretty low. Um, so Binance chain, um, Binance, obviously, these guys know how to run a centralized exchange. Um, and so they've designed the exchange from the ground up to um, solve both of these problems in a meaningful way. Canceling orders will be free. Um, and then trade block times are, are one second. Um, and the, the validators in the system rotate in a, in a deterministic way. Binance chain cannot offer perfectly deterministic order execution in the way that a centralized exchange can, but it can do it in a way that's 10 or 100 times faster than uh, kind of what's the status quo on top of Ethereum. And so um, the expectation is that, you know, those with those problems solved, um, the Binance chain will be able to offer an on-chain order book uh, with no no cost of, of, of uh, canceling orders uh, with nearly perfect deterministic execution. Wow. And... You know, I didn't mean to like only pick on zero X, but you know, just in general, as you were describing, a lot of these DEXs have pretty much almost no liquidity and no adoption. So, um, is it just pretty much the speed and, um, and the fact, you know, that this chain is built for this? Are those kind of the main reasons that you think this will be different? Like, like, you know, what are the scenarios in which also it could end up with very little liquidity and adoption? Yeah, I mean, it's possible if people don't want to trade on it, then it's totally possible that it ends up with no liquidity. Uh, one of the ways Binance is trying to mitigate that risk was specifically, I mean, Binance here is very much trying to cannibalize their own business. That is the kind of explicit explicit goal here. And one of the ways they are encouraging um, people, both makers and takers, to, to move over to Binance chain is by actually offering lower fees on the decentralized exchange and the centralized one. So there's actually a fundamental economic motivation to move over, coupled with, you know, just general trade execution um, it's our expectation that um, Binance will solve the cold start problem that has really plagued most decentralized exchanges historically. Yep. In addition to that, um, they are also supporting hardware wallets from day one. Um, so they've announced that Ledger will be supporting um, the Binance chain and the decentralized exchange um, from the day that Binance chain is launched. Um, they have also already um, seen implementations of Binance chain um, through Trust Wallet, which is their Web3 wallet uh, that they acquired recently. And so I think that they will have much better tooling already available um, in order to uh, attract volume to their decentralized exchange. Um, And while we don't have any details, I do expect that there will be some mechanism to bridge liquidity between their dominant centralized exchange and the new decentralized exchange. Oh, well, that's interesting you say that because in the report, it seemed that you guys were pretty certain that they would draw on the liquidity in the centralized exchange to to overcome that problem in the DEX. But but you're not actually 100% certain about that? Uh, they just haven't released any mechanisms or details regarding that. Um, however, from everything that we can tell from their business strategy, um, it seems pretty clear that there will be some mechanisms, but until we see the mechanisms themselves, we can't comment on the effectiveness. Okay. And I did see um, you guys kind of got into some of the details around the fact that it's utilizing Tendermint. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know how that affects uh, 
the performance, I guess, of Binance Chain or, you know, why that's significant? Yeah, so um, Tendermint is really today the gold standard in proof-of-stake consensus algorithms. The Tendermint um, protocol was invented by Jay Kwan and Ethan Buckman from the Cosmos team. Um, and they started working on this, I think, in 2014. They've been working on this for quite some time. Um, Tendermint is, uh, we spent a lot of our time working with uh, early-stage entrepreneurs building all kinds of different proof-of-stake consensus algorithms. And uh, the general recognition among everyone is that Tendermint is really just the gold standard in um, the construction of them. It's the simplest. It's the most straightforward. Um, it makes the kind of the least um, assumptions in terms of kind of protocol operation. Um, and it offers very high performance. So uh, Binance, I think, very smartly chose to uh, fork kind of the core Cosmos uh, SDK and the core Cosmos system, uh, which means they are kind of receiving Tendermint and all of its benefits um, as part of what they're building um, the net effect of that is the system will be fast um, and it will offer um, near, nearly perfect deterministic order execution, which is what traders need. Yep. Some of the details are, um, I think there will be one second block times with one second finality. And so you don't have the problem of, uh, you know, when will my trade be settled? Uh, when when can I know if the trade actually happened? Uh, you know that it's one second um, per second so or one block per second. Um, and that's something that proof of stake systems allow, which proof of work systems simply do not. Um, and I think that's a, an enormous advantage for Binance Chain. And then one other thing is that apparently Binance Chain will only support the assets that Cosmos supports. So how will Bitcoin be traded on Binance Chain? That's a great question. Um, while Cosmos and their um, their Internet of Blockchain system uh you know, is unlikely to be able to integrate with Bitcoin in the in the early days. Binance seems to have adopted the gateway model um, in order to support trading of assets that are not immediately supported um, by Cosmos or issued on Binance Chain itself. And what does uh, that mean, the ga- gateway model? So the gateway model is one where... Um, it's similar to wrapped Bitcoin, uh, if you're familiar with WBTC, which is Bitcoin that has been deposited with BitGo, along with, uh, I think, a certain number of other members in that consortium. Um, and they then issue an asset called WBTC, which is an ERC-20 token, which basically puts uh, Bitcoin on the Ethereum blockchain. Um, and the gateway model does introduce some counterparty risk in that the gateway that you know you're depositing the actual assets into and receiving uh you know the token that represents those assets from um you know you have to trust that gateway um, however those are you know fairly easily audited um you know i, I believe that for the wbtc product um, you can go and verify those bitcoin on chain match the number of WBTC that has been issued. Um, and that information is available to everyone to see all of the time. And so the gateway model is a, is a good, uh, in, like short term step until interblockchain communication grows more mature and, you know, potentially integrates with, um, other blockchains like Bitcoin. Since, um, since Binance Chain is going to be decentralized, how will they decide which assets to list? Like, just is it you know they're like right now binance itself has this vetting process but how is it going to be decided for binance chain 
Yeah. So we don't have, I think, all 100% of the details, but we have a general structure is known. And um, it's going to be basically kind of a community voting model. People, if you want to um, propose a new token be listed on Binance Chain, um, the kind of the issuer are, will need to buy and I believe burn or I think burn or spend BNB tokens. Uh, it's going to be a pretty large number. I think yeah. they've said it's going to be, I think, on the order of $100,000 or more. Um, the intention is to, to scare away all of the lower quality projects. And then there's going to be some frequency of voting where BNB holders can vote and say either, yes, we want to trade this asset or, or no, we don't. All the details of like the timing of those cycles, how many, you know, are, is there a new vote every week? Those kinds of things are still unclear, um, but, but the general structure is, not, is known. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about BNB token. Um, let's talk about how it's structured now. Um, you've defined it as a discount token. Why don't you explain what that is and just explain generally how it's used in the current Binance universe? Absolutely. So the Binance token is an interesting um, hybrid of many different use cases. Uh, the The first use case is really that of a discount token in that if you pay your trading fees on Binance, the centralized exchange, um, or the Binance chain DEX in BNB tokens, you get a discounted rate. Um, and this incentivizes traders to hold BNB tokens in their accounts and use them to pay for their trading fees in order to pay you know, what is a substantially discounted rate. In addition to being a discount token um, in that regard, um, it is also a staking token um, and in multiple ways. First, users who hold a significant amount of BNB get discounted fees on the centralized exchange. So just by holding some BNB, you also get an, an additional fee discount. Also, if you hold a significant amount of BNB, um, I believe it's 500 BNB at the moment, your referral fees from actually sending out your referral code to invite new users to the Binance exchange are doubled. Um, and so that provides an additional incentive. And last but certainly not least, and actually in our opinion, the um, one of the most important uh, pure utility aspects of, of the Binance chain uh, or the BNB token is staking BNB tokens as a validator on Binance chain in being able to earn a percentage of, you know, all fees that are paid on the Binance chain. And I think that's extraordinarily valuable. Those are all of the, the on-chain um, kind of uh, properties that are inherent to the Binance token. But in addition to all of those, the Binance um, company has also committed to using 20% of their profits to buy and burn BNB tokens until they have burned 100 million tokens in total. Uh, there were 200 million tokens created. No more can ever be created. And so this buy and burn would remove at least half of all BNB tokens ever created from the supply. Um, now, on that topic, I do want to go a little bit deeper and talk about you know some some concerns or open questions about this buy and burn model you know there there have been some open questions about you know is binance actually buying those tokens that they're burning from the open market or are they just using some of the bnb that they're being paid as fees as part of the exchange accumulating those and then burning those later 
The answer to that is it's not clear uh, which of the two that they're doing, but it doesn't really matter at all uh, because at the end of the day, the number of BNB outstanding is decreasing. And this means that each and every BNB that uh, you do hold has greater utility in all of the aspects that I mentioned earlier. So, you know, um, let's say there's 175 million BNB outstanding today um, and you own, uh, you know, 175,000 BNB, you know, you have 0.1% of all the BNB in existence. Once Binance Inc. is done burning the remainder of the BNB that they have committed to, to burning, then you will own a substantially greater percentage of the total outstanding BNB. And so if you stake those in Binance Chain, you will earn a larger reward or a larger percentage of the fees um, without having to, you know, go and buy any more tokens. So this is kind of similar to how stock buybacks will increase earnings per share in the equities world. This isn't an equity. Um, and, you know, there, there are some differences there, but I think some of those heuristics can be borrowed in order to understand the mechanics behind the buy and burn here. Yeah. One of the most fascinating parts about this whole description is that it's one of the coins I feel where you can look at it and, uh, just from your description, there's, um, they, they've got kind of the utility aspect, right? Where, um, there's going to be, because, because it has utility, there's going to be high velocity. There's going to be a lot of turnover. People are going to be using the token, you know, and, and it really only has that use. Um, but then on the flip side, uh, in terms of the value of the token, as we know, the higher your velocity, the lower the value. And so then, there's that staking element um, or, or this other stuff that you mentioned about how your referral fees get higher the more you hold, where that kind of like reduces the velocity and so helps prop up the value. And then the burning, obviously, you know, they, they can't do the exact Bitcoin model, obviously, since they did do an ICO, but it's sort of a similar concept where kind of like getting real estate now when there's like a lot of them out there uh, kind of helps you later on as the supply decreases. So um, it's just really fascinating. It, it just seems like um, they've really thought pretty carefully about how to preserve uh, the value of the token, but also obviously make sure that it's useful for something. Um, however, so going back to what I mentioned earlier, and um, obviously, I'm not a lawyer either, uh, as <laughs> as you've been saying. Um, but just from my understanding of the Howey test, um, I do think BNB, at least right now, you know, let's disregard the part about Binance Chain, that it it does fit the definition of a security in the U.S. and and that's because the definition is that it should be an investment contract in a common enterprise whose profits are dependent on an identifiable party, which in this case would be Binance. So do you really think, I mean, you, you know, we kind of discussed this issue about the company and, you know, whether or not they'll face certain regulatory risks, but what about for the token, for its ICO, how big do you think the legal risk is for them for what they've issued? That's a great question. And so first, uh, you know, I want to, to say that um, securities aren't necessarily a bad thing. Uh, you know, we are not the, the right group to, to determine, you know, is 
BNB a security or not. Um, it, that's going to be up to the regulators and the courts to, to decide. Um, but, you know, being a security isn't, uh, you know, just an unequivocally negative thing. Uh, you know, there's, there's certain restrictions that come with it, but, um, otherwise, you know, I own plenty of securities personally, you know, Apple, Apple shares are a security. Uh, so it's, it's not just like some negative thing to be. Now let's look at, you know, what happens if the courts do determine that BNB is a security? Well, there's a couple of things that are possible. Uh, the first is that, uh, they ask any venue that is trading this unregistered security to delist it. Given that the vast, vast majority of BNB trading volume occurs on Binance itself, uh, this seems to be a low risk to us, uh, just because Binance is not within, entirely within the U.S. jurisdiction. Um, and so it seems unlikely that liquidity would just vanish um, if that statement was made by the U.S. regulators. Or the other thing that we've seen with, you know, unauthorized securities offerings is you have to give investors in the ICO a put right where you have to give them the ability to get their money back at the price that they paid. Um, however, I would be absolutely shocked if any of the original BNB ICO investors decided to exercise that right if it was provided to them, given that it would be entirely economically just irrational to do so. Uh, Binance Coin has, you know, delivered extremely attractive returns since the ICO. And so even if it is determined a security, um, I do not think that, uh, you know, any rational investor would actually, you know, try to exercise that put right and, and get their money back, um, for lack of a better term. So, you know, while there is some risk there, it's just something that, you know, we as investors are willing to take on. You know, we are compensated for taking risk. And, uh, you know, uh, if we didn't want to take any risk, we would just be investing in U.S. treasuries. <laughs> Um, so one other thing I wanted to talk about was in your report, you made a pretty bold claim that Binance will become the first company to start out centralized, achieve scale, and then decentralize itself and migrate value capture from Binance to the BNB token. How can you feel so confident of that now when it's pretty early? Yeah. So, I mean, if uh, I think throughout the report, we uh, highlight some quotes from CZ that he's made over the last year that pretty strongly insinuate that that is the game plan. Um, and then it's also just very clear if you look at just generally how Binance is evolving as an organization, like th that is that is the game plan. Um, CZ, uh, the, 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 the company is already quite decentralized in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, the, t the 400 people work across 40 countries. Um, they are a very global company in, in nature. Um, yeah, the current centralized exchange does, you know, that is centralized kind of architecturally. But like they, they're launching BNB and the Binance. They're launching the Binance chain to disrupt themselves. And the ultimate manifestation of disrupting themselves with Binance chain is that they decentralize themselves. And so that that's very clear. That that's the, the kind of long term vision. It's actually unclear if that will happen. But if if there is a company that is going to start on centralized scale and then decentralize itself, it's hard to imagine it being anyone other than Binance. And at what time scale do you imagine that happening over? Uh, it's hard to say at this point. This is definitely going to be slow. Uh, I, I can't imagine it would be. I mean, a what does fully decentralized mean? That that's somewhat ambiguous. But I, I'd expect at least five years. And you also said that you imagine Binance will become the first decentralized autonomous corporation. How do you define that? And how is it literally just that they'll disrupt the actual existing company? And 
what will be left is the Binance chain and BNB token or how will that happen? Yep. Uh, So I want to start with a quote from CZ. This is from the most recent um, quote unquote earnings announcement uh, and token burn. Um, And so in that CZ says, from an earnings standpoint, Binance Dex will not directly increase profitability for Binance, but it will certainly increase the utility of BNB in a big way. That should be good for BNB holders. Binance is also a large holder of BNB, so we benefit the same way as all BNB holders. The more people using Binance Chain, the more value is created or the more successful we all become. And from that and other quotes uh, similar to that, uh, what we see is that, um, you know, I think CZ really understands that the vision for blockchain technology is to remove rent-seeking middlemen and allow users of a network to actually own that network. Um, and the same is true of an exchange. An exchange is just a network. It's another type of network. You know, it's not just, um, it's not a network in the same way that a communications network is necessarily, but it's a network and it's, it benefits from the same types of network effects. And so what we see as um, the actual way that this happens is that more and more of the trading volume and almost, you know, eventually all of the trading volume moves to the decentralized exchange as a decentralized exchange has lower fees and also allows the users of the decentralized exchange to own, you know, uh, some percentage of the exchange themselves. And then, uh, you know, Binance is basically become a decentralized autonomous corporation. Um, you know, a, a combine the earning of the fees, uh, you know, being paid out to BNB holders uh, as part of Binance chain with the fact that um, BNB holders will be voting on what tokens are listed on the on the chain. And I'm sure there will be some other details revealed about governance um, of, you know, upgrading the system, etc. Um, so, in that case, it turns BNB into basically the ownership token of the Binance chain. Um, and the Binance chain is that, quote unquote, decentralized autonomous um, corporation. And in that vision, does Binance itself still exist? I believe that the that the fiat to crypto portions of Binance uh, you know, cannot actually be decentralized. I mean, those require an actual bank account. And that um, that's going to be impossible to decentralize unless we see, you know, some some massive changes in um, regulatory structure. Um, so there will still be some centralized components to Binance that continue to exist. And one thing is when you were describing this vision, I've heard you guys also talk about sort of like, uh, well, basically Binance employees and how they've bought into this vision or, or just kind of seen part of this movement. So how would you describe kind of like BNB employees, what, you know, why they've decided to join the company and, and stuff like that. Absolutely. Um, I think one thing that's, that's very clear from our interactions with both the, you know, the leadership team at Binance, as well as, you know, uh, many of the, the everyday employees is uh, that this is a company that really has a missionary culture rather than a mercenary culture. Uh, You know, we can tell that they, that they truly, care about this industry. They really want to do, you know, what's right for increasing adoption. Um, And I think that came through in your interview, Laura, with CZ last year. Um, It was, 
I think, pretty clear to anyone who listens to CZ speak that, uh, you know, here is someone who uh, really isn't just motivated by the money, is really motivated by the mission and uh, what blockchain technology and crypto can accomplish for billions of people around the world. Um, and so culture really does uh, flow from the top there. And I think CZ is, a, is an excellent representation of that. Uh, the parallel that that I actually drew um, in the blog post that we published announcing the report was uh, to Jeff Bezos, where, you know, it's very clear from looking at Jeff Bezos's actions and quotes over, you know, the past 20 plus years uh, that he believes in putting the customer first um, in everything that Amazon does. They put the customer first. Um, his most famous quote, at least in my opinion, is your margin is my opportunity because it gives an opportunity to cut prices and benefit customers. And so, you know, seeing that same ethos here with CZ um, is uh, something that, you know, I as an investor find extremely attractive. Um, and then in addition to, um, you know, all of those philosophical aspects, uh, just from a pure financial perspective and a pure, you know, aligned incentives perspective, uh, we do know that a very large percentage of Binance employees are taking a significant portion of their core salary, not bonuses, their core salary in BNB tokens. Um, and we know that Binance Inc. is incentivized, uh, you know, by holding a large amount of BNB tokens as well. And so, you know, while being in business with, uh, you know, people who really uh, believe in what they're doing and are doing it for the right reasons is very important. Um, so is making sure that incentives are properly aligned. And I think, uh, you know, both of those conditions are present here. Yeah, I've also heard you guys say that a lot of the employees have taken pay cuts to work at Binance. So to not only take a pay cut, but then to be compensated in the company's own token, uh, I definitely would say a lot of them have really bought in. So this has been super fascinating, but, um, and, and definitely you've painted like a very kind of bullish picture. And, you know, as I mentioned, I really, I, I just had so much respect for ZZ after our interview because I really grilled him hard. And he, you know, like I said, he just really kind of believes in what he's doing and, and he didn't take it poorly at all. Like I did a 100th episode where, uh, listeners and past guests could send in recordings and he sent in a recording. Um, and he, he said it was his toughest interview. Um, but anyway, so, you know, with all this stuff that we've said here, obviously, you know, I know you guys believe in, uh, Binance and what they're trying to do around decentralization, but what do you think are the biggest risks to their decentralization strategy? Like, you know, if five years from now or whatever, we say, okay, their plan to decentralize failed. What do you think will have been the factors that kept it from succeeding? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I think that there are really two categories of risks here. Uh, category one of risks is, uh, you know, risk to the, to the existing business. Um, and, you know, some of the main risks to the existing business, um, many of these, which we noted in our report, are competitors accelerating token listings and being successful in attracting volume away from Binance. Uh, you know, we have seen that, for example, uh, Coinbase has gotten very aggressive in listing new tokens recently. Um, however, uh, we do think that this risk is, um, is mitigated um, or is quite low. Um, because, you know, we can look at, um, 
the actions from, you know, let's, let's look at Coinbase in particular. You know, they listed CVC, they listed Loom, they listed Mana, uh, they listed GNT. Um, and those tokens are, um, really not, uh, or Coinbase was not able to attract a significant portion of the volume away from Binance on those tokens. And so we don't really see, uh, competitors coming in and listing these tokens as being, uh, that large of a, of a risk. Um, another risk is that competitors start lowering pricing. Binance has the lowest fees in the industry, um, and they are able to sustain this through scale. Um, this is, you know, why they are one of the largest exchanges in the industry. If one of these other exchanges is able to cut their fees to compete, you know, they may be successful in attracting some volume. However, um, that might be difficult in this crypto winter, uh, given that, you know, some of these exchanges are, you know, out there looking to raise capital or have, you know, recently raised capital and need to justify, you know, having revenue at certain amounts, uh, in order to, to really meet investor expectations. So it becomes really hard to cut fees in that scenario. Are there any other factors that you think will have kept it from succeeding? Yep. Um, so now let's get to the second category of risks. And these are risks around execution of these future projects, namely Binance Chain. I mean, Binance Chain is not live yet. We have seen a testnet. We've played with the testnet. The testnet is pretty cool. It seems to work, but you know, it's not in production. And until it's in production, we cannot know for sure how it will work. There could be failures with Tendermint. We, uh, you know, we don't have um, a Tendermint chain in production that, you know, we can point to operating for the past X years with, uh, you know, perfect security and finality. Uh, so there could be some failure there as well. Um, and so there is meaningful technical risk here. And if that technical risk plays out, um, you know, we could see that, um, that Binance chain fails for purely technological reasons. I think that's probably the most material risk um, facing uh, BNB today. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for joining the show to talk about BNB and Binance and Binance chain. Where can people learn more about both of you and Multicoin Capital? Uh, yeah, so you guys can learn more about Multicoin Capital at our website. Uh, it is multicoin.capital. That's it. There is no .com. Uh, and then on Twitter, you can follow me. Uh, my handle is at Kyle Samani, K-Y-L-E-S-A-M-A-N-I. Yep. And my handle on Twitter is at Tushar Jane uh, with an underscore at the end. I, someone else has the at Tushar Jane handle. So. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably not as famous as you. <laughs> oh, I'm flattered. Um, but, you know, he has the Twitter handle. Maybe one day I'll be able to buy it off him. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks to both of you for coming on the show. Thank you, Laura, for having us. It's been a lot of fun chatting with you. Thanks, Laura. We had a blast. I can't wait to hear this one in the real world. Great. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Tushar and Kyle and Multicoin, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, I highly recommend you check it out and subscribe now. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylan Gallipoli, Frasted Recording, Jenny Josephson, Daniel Ness, and Rich Straffolino. Thanks for listening.